Hello, and welcome back to Cinema Sunday. And I guess I can officially say welcome to 2023. Here's hoping we all find good health, happiness, and good fortune in the year to come. I am your host, Candy Thomas, and each week I'm going to watch one of the 94 movies that have won an Oscar for Best Picture and tell you exactly what I think of them. I'm going to follow the same template I always follow, which is the basic details of the movie, things like who's in it and what's it all about. And I'm going to answer three important questions. One, does it stand the test of time? Two, is it Oscar worthy? Three, should you watch it? Or is this just another two hours you wish you could have back? Just as a friendly warning, along with my very honest assessment of these movies. You'll also get my hot takes on many current events, my rants about things that sort of piss me off, and it's all mixed with a heaping dose of adult language. Please be sure you listen with caution. Around here, it's all about fussing and cussing, so if that's not your thing, you probably just want to move along. Before we begin, I'd like to thank Wikipedia and IMDb, as they are great sources of information for all things Oscar and movie-related. And with that, let's take it away. This week's Oscar-winning film is Chicago. It was released December 27th of 2002. It's directed by Rob Marshall. It stars Renee Zellweger, Catherine Zeta-Jones, Richard Gere, Queen Latifah, and John C. Riley, plus an extraordinarily talented group of actors in smaller roles and an incredible group of singers and dancers who didn't get widely celebrated but will absolutely knock your socks off. This is very much a collective effort. It was nominated for a total of 12 Oscars, and it won six. It won for Best Picture. Best Supporting Actress, Best Art Direction, Best Costume Design, Best Film Editing, and Best Sound. If you want to watch it, it can be found on HBO Max and Spectrum if you have subscriptions. Or you can pay a few dollars to watch it on Amazon Prime, Vudu, Redbox, or Apple TV. So what's it about? It's based on the 1975 Broadway musical, and to be honest, I've never seen any theater production of Chicago, so I can't say this for absolute certain, but I'm guessing this is one of the best stage-to-screen musical transformations ever, at least in the top five of all time. Chicago takes place in 1924. We start by being introduced to Velma Kelly, who's played by Catherine Zeta-Jones, and I fully intend to gush about her performance later in the episode because it's fantastic, and she deserves an entire episode of her own. Velma is a popular vaudeville performer at the Onyx Theater in, you guessed it, Chicago. She and her sister perform as a duo, but on this particular night, we see Velma performing alone. Turns out earlier that evening, she discovered her sister was having an affair with her husband. So Velma shot and killed both of them. <laughs> Ever the professional, she shows up for work and nails her performance. But the police are waiting for her off stage, and she's arrested for murder. In the audience that night is Roxy Hart, who's played by Renee Zellweger. Roxy is a housewife and occasional chorus dancer who yearns to be a big star. She's confident that she has the talent. She just really needs her big break. Roxy foolishly believes she can get a foot in the door by sleeping with a furniture salesman named Fred Casely, who insists 
he knows the manager of the Onyx and could help her get an audition. The affair lasts for a month before that scumbag Casely finally admits he doesn't know the manager of the Onyx. In fact, he just lied to get Roxy into the sack. Now, of course, she's pissed. So Roxy pulls out her husband's gun and shoots Fred dead right in the middle of her own apartment. Her unsuspecting and very gullible husband, Amos, played by John C. Riley, and you know him. He's typically a hilarious sidekick in movies like Step Brothers or Talladega Nights, but he's also a very reliable, dramatic actor in movies like Magnolia and Boogie Nights. He's pretty much good in everything he's in, and this is no exception. Amos believes Roxy's story, that the the dead man laying on the floor in their home is a burglar that Roxy killed in self-defense. In fact, Roxy is able to convince Amos to take the blame himself, telling the police that he came home from work to catch the burglar entering their home as Roxy slept, and he's the one that shot the guy to death. It seems like an open and shut case, right? Why would anyone prosecute a man for protecting his home? Until the police tell Amos that the dead man is Fred Casely. And Amos's wheels start to spin. He's like, but how could he be a burglar? My wife knows him. Add that to the story being told by the nosy neighbor across the hall that identifies Fred Casely as someone who came to Roxy and Amos's apartment a few nights a week while Amos was at work. Awkward. Well, it doesn't take Amos but a half a second to rescind his false confession. Roxy is arrested for murder, and the district attorney announces he intends to seek the death penalty. Now keep in mind, this is the 20s. The death penalty meant being hanged in town square. At the Cook County Jail, Roxy is assigned to Murderess's Row, which is where she meets her idol Velma Kelly and several other women, most of whom who have killed their abusive or cheating husbands. The ward is overseen by a corrupt jail matron who goes by the name Mama Morton. She's played by Queen Latifah, who also turns in a great performance here. And Mama Morton, who pretends to care about the prisoners, is still very much on the take. And if you have money to buy her off, she can make life very livable for you while you're in the pen. Velma is utilizing every bit of Morton's help to ensure she retains her fame and fortune. And she's more popular than ever. She doesn't have much time for the other prisoners, including Roxy. Money and gifts are pouring in for Velma from loyal supporters who believe in her innocence. Morton is even pulling strings with her outside connections for after-prison career opportunities for Velma, so she can quickly return to the spotlight she deserves upon her release. Reality sinks in for Roxy. She knows she's going to be tried and most likely found guilty. At Morton's suggestion, she hires Billy Flynn, who's played by Richard Gere. He's the same lawyer who represents Velma. There's a great expense in hiring a man of his stature. So Roxy's husband, the sweet, lovable Amos, who probably feels guilty about throwing her under the bus, scrapes together whatever he can to pay Flynn's costly retainer. Flynn knows both Roxy and Velma's cases are probably hopeless. So the best he can do is hope to manipulate the press and the public by putting forth reasonable doubt in both cases. Flynn and Roxy partner to reinvent her image as a virtuous, naive Southern girl who was corrupted by the lustful sin of the big city. Her new story is that she only entered into the affair with Fred Casely because she was lonely with Amos working all the time. 
but she knew it was wrong and she broke it off. It was then that Fred attacked her and she had to fight back. If they can convince the public that Roxy was in fear for her life from a deranged man she'd just broken up with, maybe she can be found not guilty. Meanwhile, Velma is up in arms because all the press is focused on Roxy's trial, which means Velma is no longer in the headlines. Confident that Flynn will get them both released, Velma tries to convince Roxy they could be a dynamic duo if they combined their talents on stage once they were both released from prison. But Roxy, now believing she's the bigger star and is 100% unstoppable, she laughs off the suggestion that she would combine with such a has-been like Velma Kelly. Right before Roxy goes on trial, there's another murder in Chicago that steals the headlines. An heiress named Kitty Baxter is arrested for murdering her husband and the two women she found him in bed with. Billy Flynn is hired to defend Kitty. And you guessed it, there's a big rush of press coverage for Kitty's case, which threatens to steal the focus from Roxy, right when she needs it the most. Quick-thinking Roxy brings the focus back to her by claiming she's pregnant. This changes the dynamic in a huge way. There is no one on earth that wants to see a pregnant woman hanged, so the attention and support for Roxy goes into overdrive. Amos does the math and realizes the baby probably isn't his, so his support for her begins to waver again. But Flynn is sure he can spin this and make it work to his advantage. But by now, Roxy is growing tired of listening to Flynn. As far as she's concerned, she is the star, and she is the one people are coming to see. She is the one coming up with all the best ideas, and she's convinced herself that Flynn is just in it for the money, and he's trying to hog her spotlight. In fairness, it's probably true. Flynn does show a tendency to take a client's money and then drag his feet a bit. He seems to always be waiting for the bigger paycheck. We see him go from Velma to Roxy to Kitty and back to Roxy without missing a beat. So Roxy gets pissed off, and she fires him. Adios, lawyer man. Don't let the door hit you on the way out. But when Catalin Halinski, a Hungarian woman on Murders' Row, who it appears is the only innocent one in a sea full of man killers, she becomes the first woman in Cook County history to be executed by hanging. This causes Roxy to finally grasp the magnitude of her situation, and she realizes she's sunk without the help of a good lawyer. Flynn is rehired the very next day. And Roxy commits she'll follow his guidance and stop acting like an egomaniacal asshole. The trial begins, and Flynn successfully manages to turn it into an absolute circus. He has Roxy dressed very conservatively and advises her to be knitting baby booties while she's sitting in court to remind the jury she's supposed to be with child. Billy manages to discredit several prosecution witnesses, manipulate the evidence, and stages the opportunity for Roxy and Amos to reconcile publicly when she claims in court that the baby she's carrying is indeed his. Roxy takes the stand in her own defense, and she does a solid gold job of convincing the jury that she feared for her life that she and Fred Casely both reached for the gun, she fought him, got the gun, and shot him to save her unborn child. Everything seems to be going as planned until Velma Kelly arrives in court as a witness for the prosecution. She has in her possession Roxy's diary, which she claims to have found just lying around. 
but that the details inside will incriminate Roxy. And in exchange for her testimony, Velma will be given immunity and released from prison. Of course, there's a bit of cat and mouse here, as the diary has been notably doctored, and Flynn manages to convince the jury that District Attorney Harrison planted the evidence against Roxy. Roxy is acquitted as anticipated, but just moments after the jury's verdict is read, another murder takes place right outside the courthouse, on the steps outside, and the press rush to move on to the next big thing. Without their adoration and attention and her press conferences and her picture on the front page, Roxy is just another woman with no fame, no money, and no career prospects. Flynn admits to Roxy that he was the one that doctored the diary to get both of his clients freed simultaneously, managing to earn every penny of the huge expense both clients put forward. He proves that no matter how guilty his clients are, with a little bit of smooth talking and some fancy footwork, Billy can get not guilty verdicts every time. Now released from prison, Roxy is making the rounds, trying unsuccessfully to launch a vaudeville act of her own. Also unsuccessful is Velma Kelly, who hasn't been able to recapture the success she experienced prior to her arrest. So Velma approaches Roxy and suggests they perform together because a double act with two murderers is likely to be a much bigger hit than any one murderer performing alone. Of course, she's right. And the movie ends with the two of them doing a spectacular performance on stage before a packed house of enthusiastic theater goers. They receive high praise and a rousing standing ovation. Question one. Does Chicago stand the test of time? Absolutely, yes. I enjoy this movie just as much today as I did when it first came out in theaters 20 years ago. There was a time back in the 60s when musicals, particularly Oscar-winning musicals, were commonplace. But our love for them faded. Chicago was the first musical to win for Best Picture since Oliver did it in 1968. Along with 2001's Moulin Rouge and 8 Mile, Chicago helped to re-engage audiences in the musical film genre in the 21st century. Following the success of Chicago, many movie musicals have been produced for theatrical release. Among them are Dreamgirls, Sweeney Todd, Mamma Mia, Les Mis, Rock of Ages, Cats, and so on and so on. There were some changes to the song lineup for the movie version of Chicago. Many songs from the original theater version didn't make the cut, but holy cow, the songs that are in this movie are very well performed. Every member of the cast manages to hold their own in the singing department. The songs in this case aren't meant to be filler. They seamlessly help move the movie forward often telling big chunks of the story with their lyrics, exactly what you'd expect from a well-produced musical. Artistically, it is an amazing film to watch. The best description I can give is the word spectacular. That's exactly what it is. The costumes, the choreography, and the sound. I mean, it's just dazzling. It's a clever script, lots of humor and depth, and it transitions very well from spoken scenes to musical productions and back without ever missing a beat. Many of the scenes are a depiction of what's happening inside Roxy's head. So they're her daydreams or fantasies that are being played out in very vivid detail. 
Every performer holds their own in the singing and dancing scenes, even those you'd never think had it in them, like Richard Gere and John C. Riley. From an overall theme perspective, many of the women on Murderous's Row were indeed legitimate victims of abusive, drunk, or cheating husbands, so you can manage to find a degree of empathy for them. But let me be clear, you definitely shouldn't blow your husband away with a shotgun because you don't like the way he pops his gum. But there are some characters who have been legitimate victims, and it's easy to root for them in their pursuit of justice. I do find it a bit ironic all these years later that Roxy Hart ends up being one of the protagonists, considering that she was the one having an affair behind the back of her husband, who had never been anything but a loving and kind man to her. She's so overcome with the need for fame and money that she doesn't really care who she has to hurt to get there. She murdered a man in cold blood whose only crime really was lying to her. To be honest, she really is kind of a shitty person. If the roles were reversed and this character was a man, we'd all be cheering for him to be drawn and quartered by morning. But somehow, we buy into the notion that Roxy Hart deserves another chance. And it's reinforced with the sweet, demure smile and big-eyed appeal of Renee Zellweger. So be warned, you will find yourself on her side, whether you intend to be or not. Question two, is it Oscar-worthy? Yes, it's definitely a very good movie. The other movies nominated that year were Gangs of New York, The Hours, The Pianist, and Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers. I think there's some really fantastic filmmaking in this group, but I can also see how it was easy for Chicago to stick out among this group of much deeper, darker, kind of dramatic movies. By comparison to them, Chicago feels like you've won a free trip to Disneyland, so it's hard not to vote for something so uplifting and widely entertaining. Catherine Zeta-Jones won for Best Supporting Actress. I personally think she should have been nominated in the Best Actress category because I, I, I will die on this hill. I think that Velma's storyline is every bit a starring role as Roxy's is. But to be honest, that probably would have diminished her chances to win, which she so richly deserved. Often we see talented actors appear in musicals and we're just frankly happy when they can just be convincing enough to not make themselves look foolish, never mind that we'd ever expect them to knock it out of the park. Think of Meryl Streep in the movie Mamma Mia, you know, just basically okay enough to kind of hold her own, but but wasn't great. But Catherine Zeta-Jones is in her own category here. She absolutely owns the character of Velma. She contributes the type of performance you come to expect of a professional singer and dancer, which isn't easy considering nearly every musical number is filled with dozens of actual professional singers and dancers. But she doesn't miss a beat. Every single split, jump, high kick, she's got it. And the strength and maturity to her singing voice is like magic to your ears. It is the role that made me a Catherine Zeta-Jones fan. This truly is her absolute most shining moment. Likewise, Renee Zellweger's performance is full of surprises. She's well above average in the singing department. She may not sing with the confident power or gusto that Zeta-Jones possesses, but she will impress you nonetheless. 
I think she dances well enough, but most of Roxy's musical numbers are solo. So there's not an army of, you know, rockette caliber dancers in the background for Renee to be compared to. I think the fairest way to say it is that she dances well enough to pull off the character of Roxy, but I'm not sure she would have been able to play Velma. And I'm, I'm not trying to bash physical appearance, but in my opinion, Zellweger, who's always been a petite, healthy person, she is just simply too thin in this movie. She has a good deal of lean muscle, but compared to all the professional dancers, she kind of looks gaunt and maybe a little bit bony. I don't want to go off on a tangent because I really don't want to be the one who criticizes other women for their choice of how they wish to look. It's their body. But you see it in the final scene when she and Zeta Jones are performing together. She just looks a little bit gangly. I guess that's the, the, the word I want to use. It's not noticeably bad. It's just different. I guess what I'm trying to say is that it's terrible that Hollywood pressures women to look a certain way in order to be popular. And many of them will make unhealthy decisions in order to stay relevant. And I do worry that was what Zellweger was going through at this stage in her career. And I, I think it's incredibly sad. Moving on. Let's talk about the costumes for a minute. There is the authentic feel of the 20s jazz era, which is a really cool period in American fashion history anyway. Women wearing flashy dresses covered with fringe and sparkly gems. Their short, cutesy bob haircuts and their long, dangly earrings. The entire look is fantastic, and it's very authentic. The men in zoot suits and fedoras, oh, I just love it. Then there are the dance numbers that feel more like cabaret, or I guess burlesque is probably the best word to describe it. There's an incredible amount of challenging choreography. But now I'll picture all the women wearing little more than like bras and panties with garters. It's very sexy, but it's not meant to be in a sexualized way. It doesn't come across as demeaning or gratuitous, in my opinion. All of the other main performers were nominated for acting Oscars as well. Unfortunately, Renee Zellweger, Richard Gere, Queen Latifah, and John C. Riley all came up empty. I found Queen Latifah to be another pleasant surprise. She has a great solo scene where she's doing this sexy, flirty dance, and she pulls it off with such great confidence. You're just going to love it. Question three, should you watch it? Yes, I really do think you should. It's, it's very entertaining. There's a lot of razzle-dazzle and great performances and flashy costumes and catchy songs. There's a number of smaller roles played by notable actors like Christine Baranski and Lucy Liu and Tay Diggs and Dominic West and Maya. Just a heaping dose of talent coming at you from all angles. It seamlessly moves back and forth between the, the real scenes and kind of Roxy's daydream scenes. So they do such a great job of blending the two together. I remember when I saw this in the theater, I had no previous knowledge of the story at all. And I had never seen any stage production of Chicago. I walked in with zero frame of reference. The opening act, which is all that jazz performed by Zeta Jones, it left me stunned. I was so wowed. I thought it couldn't get any better, but it does. Every single song, just one after the other, it just keeps getting better and better. By the time it, it got to Cell Block Tango, which I think is the fourth or fifth song, I was just beside myself. It was just so delightful. Many of the musical acts are like Cirque du Soleil performances. 
I, I can't give enough credit to the choreographers and the wildly talented backup dancers. It's, it's, well, it's spectacular. If you like big, flashy, colorful, eye-popping musical productions, you're going to really enjoy Chicago. Okay, that's a wrap. Thank you for listening. This has been episode 13 of Cinema Sunday. I'll be back next week to discuss another Oscar-winning film. Please tell your friends about this podcast. It's really helpful if you like and follow the show or even post a review. That is the best way to help Cinema Sunday reach a wider audience. The music for Cinema Sunday is appropriately titled So Happy. It is by Scott Holmes Music. I got it off of freemusicarchives.org. And the work is licensed under Creative Commons by NC 4.0. Links are provided in the bio. And if you happen to visit the Free Music Archive, they do take donations. So please be generous. Thanks and see you next week.